Welcome to Out of the Arts with Beth and Amy. We will help you bridge the gap between an arts career and a career outside the arts industry. If you enjoyed today's podcast, make sure to subscribe and follow us on social media at Out of the Arts, linked in the show notes. I am so excited to share with you our interview of Katie Young. Katie is a stage manager turned activist and is now running her own political campaign. Katie is running for state representative for Washington State's 31st District. She talks about how to engage in the political process, how her theater background helps her in politics, and even the skills she wants to bring back to the arts industry. Hi, Katie. Hello. Uh, Welcome. I am so excited that you're here joining us. (laughs) I'm excited too. So as we get started, can you give us some background as to your theater experiences? Yeah, totally. So I probably like a lot of theater people found theater and specifically stage managing in high school and fell in love with it and was like, this is what I want to do. And I went to NYU's Gallatin School where you like get to develop your own major and program because I knew I wanted to work in theater, but I also sometimes have a hard time with like such an immersive singular sort of experience. And I didn't want that sort of conservatory style program at Tisch to sour theater for me. So I studied theater production and business kind of like from a producing perspective at Gallatin, but I also was really interested in genocide studies. It was a topic that was brought to my attention when I was in high school a really awesome teacher who taught a senior elective on genocides in the 20th century. And I thought, wow, I have had a really privileged education. I went to a private school. I took all the AP classes. And I think we had like the mentions of the Holocaust during your World War II sections of US history. And maybe, maybe a sentence about the Armenian genocide during the World War I section. But I was like, there are so many of these atrocities that I've literally never heard of. And so I felt really compelled to keep studying it. So I had this like kind of hybrid education experience at NYU that was part history and part standard theater. But one of the major reasons I wanted to be in New York City was to get hands-on experience. So I did some internships and ended up getting a PA job on the off-Broadway revival of Rent that Michael Greif directed because I was a total rent head. And I was like, Michael Grave is doing rent. And I had some very supportive supervisors at my internship that I was a part of um, with two jams and theaters who really helped me get an interview for that job, which was amazing. But that kind of kicked me off. And I eventually got my equity card by being a sub on that production of rent. And like a lot of stage managers, I imagine. The jobs were just kind of somebody I'd worked with on the previous thing, recommended me for something else, and expanded. So most of my work has been in off-Broadway, mostly plays, but I've done some musicals, a nice mix of new works and Shakespeare. I also should add that in addition to stage managing, I've gotten more into directing, and I hope that I can continue exploring that because I had a a real come to Jesus. I took a year to like focus on PAing on Broadway. It was like, I'm going to try and get into these rooms that I want to be in and like meet new stage managers and learn new things. And I was like, oh, wow, all of these rooms are led by men. I would watch as like stories for the females got like chipped away. And all the writers were like, why isn't this working? Like, why don't we like this male character? And it's like, well, 
why don't we like build up some of our women so that like it, it, it just felt so male centric and I was like I think that I need to be in a different position to affect change in that area of what stories are we telling and how are we telling them I think we don't value our stage managers enough for them to to make direct change in that uh, area so I've also started directing and really love that work as well so how long have you been in Washington versus having been in New York? So I like kind of float back and forth. A lot of my work is in New York. So I do spend a lot of time there, but as is the life of theater people, you kind of go wherever the work is. So I've toured a little bit. I've worked upstate at a really lovely company called Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival. Wherever that paycheck takes me is where I go. We have your background and your interests, right? So that kind of bridged the gap for you into politics. Unfortunately, COVID had you starting to think that it's time to maybe pursue that a little bit. There felt like a serendipity to it all. I don't know if any of you saw what the Constitution means to me, and now so many more people will get to see that amazing piece of art. But I was participating in the Lincoln Center Theater Directors Lab in 2019 and Bart Scher came to speak to us and he was telling us all about his interest in lowercase p political theater. So like this theater that talks about something and like takes mm -hmm. the stand for something. Mm -hmm. And the night before I had seen what the Constitution means to me and I'm not a crier in the theater like I notoriously, when I enjoy something, like I smile and enjoy, like I'm so happy, even if it's horrific or terrible or sad. Like I was surprised myself when I wept through that entire show. And then I come in to this conversation about how important lowercase p political theater is. And I raised my hand and I was like, but why should we not all quit our jobs and move to Wisconsin or Pennsylvania and like canvas for whoever becomes the Democratic nominee? He was like, I don't know. <laughs> and so I had had this like very specific framing of like, is theater enough? I do think theater is so important. And I, I would even say that theater is enough. What a noble and important thing to dedicate your life to of helping people train their empathy and helping people understand stories. I love that, by the way, helping yes. people train their empathy. Yes. Yeah, right? I have a really good friend, Alyssa May Gold, who runs a theater company called Pocket Universe. And she started framing theater and storytelling in the, in the realm of empathy exercise. So I, that's a slight adaptation of her words. I'll <laughs> give that shout out. But I was just craving something like a little more immediate, you know, like training empathy is a long game. You're hoping that at some point in time, those who were sitting in the, what the constitution means to me theater with me will be like, Hmm, maybe I should vote differently or maybe I should give money to Planned Parenthood or, you know, like whatever it may be. And so I was like really primed to be like, how can I get more involved? I've been working with this company called Waterwell in New York and their work is so incredible because they phrase themselves as, as a civic minded theater company. And I was stage managing and eventually the associate director for a project they have called The Courtroom a reenactment of deportation proceedings. So it's actual transcripts of this deportation case of a woman 
in Chicago. She was from the Philippines. She married a, an American man. She went to the DMV to get a state ID, showed them her visa. In the process, because there was a language barrier, she gets registered to vote. And when they receive the voter, like the voter registration information in the mail, they both kind of assume that it's allowed because it happened while she was getting her state ID. And like, she showed all the documents that said she's not a citizen. She votes. And then in her green card hearings, they ask her if she's ever voted. She honestly answers yes. And they immediately halt her green card process and issue deportation orders. So the case like goes through this woman's experience in deportation proceedings. And I, had, I was learning so much about our immigration court system. Lee Sunday Evans, who directed that piece, her and Arian Moyed, who edited down the transcripts, spent hours going to like deportation courts and immigration courts and talking to a really lovely immigration, former immigration judge, Jeff Chase, learning all about our immigration system in the United States and how stacked the deck is against immigrants. And so I was like, I do have this ideal theatrical experience where I feel like this work is super important. I'm learning a ton and like we're able to activate the people who have experienced this story in further action to kind of like serve our immigrant populations. And that was so rewarding. But that's like one job out of my entire career. <laughs> and so I got an email from our district Democrat group saying, the filing deadline is tomorrow and no one is filed to run against the incumbent candidate. Would anybody like to run for office? And I was just kind of, a. it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, this is, this is one of the things I've been looking for. Like, this is the activation. And so I, of course, called Lee Sunday Evans, who directed the courtroom. And I was like, Lee, what should I do? And she was like, you can do this. Like, you should do this. And I filed. So it was, it was almost this like wonderfully perfect, I couldn't think about it too much because it's a terrifying decision. And I easily could have talked myself out of it, but it was like, at the very least, let's give people a decision on who's representing them. It gives us an opportunity to continue organizing and let people know that there are other Democrats in this area and also help people learn about how progressive values can really serve populations that traditionally are not associated with those things. Like we have a lot of farmers in our area. So how, how does climate policy give opportunities to our farmers? How can we help farmers implement carbon sequestration on their land? How can we help I don't them even know capture... what that is. So carbon sequestration is the idea that trees are actually really useful in capturing carbon from our atmosphere and storing it in the soil. If you have a large area of forested land, that actually is a great tool in helping to keep the carbon in the soil where it's not damaging our atmosphere. Or there's another relatively new area where farmers will capture methane from their cattle and sell it as energy. There are all of these ways where like climate justice policy can totally align with the work of our farmers and it takes a little bit of work to like overcome what I've at least heard as the narrative in progressive circles of meat is bad. Everyone should be vegetarians. And like, yes, we should all try and eat less meat. But also there are real human beings whose livelihoods are tied to 
cattle farming. So how do we how do we get them on board and make their work in service of this goal too? So all of that, like getting to organize around progressive ideas and helping to give the community of Democrats in my red to purplish district an opportunity to come together and say like, we exist and we're getting stronger every year. Really have that community has been so rewarding and exciting. That is epically cool. Um, if you are not aware, just so you know, (laughs) like, Um, as, as an artist, you have taken your art and you've taken the stories of the people around you to build this activist community. And it's kind of such a shame because we don't see as much of that as we see of Into the Woods. Everyone does Into the Woods. Okay, we know it's going to bring an audience. We need to make money. Cool. But is that building the community which is going to go out and take over the world in every best way possible? Probably yeah, not. And like, how can we do in the, Into the Woods in a way that activates people? Like one of my favorite plays is Measure for Measure, which like traditionally considered a problem play and it's not uncomplicated. The story structure is complicated. The themes are complicated. But what a great story to talk about women's rights. What a great story to look at the way that women are not heard in our leadership, how women are used and taken advantage of in our governments, in our societies, how we use the female body, how we use the female voice, all of these ways that we can really call attention to issues that are very important in a modern context through a classic story And then I think the work that we need to be doing a better job of as producers and as theater makers is great. Hopefully I've communicated the message of Measure for Measure or the message I think is important for Measure for Measure. And here are some easy ways to implement or affect change in this area in your lives. Is there legislation around? The average person is not Googling their state. All of that stuff exists. You can go on and see what your legislature is working on, what people are voting on, how people are voting. I'm a politics nerd and it's only in this campaign that I've started doing that. So like, how can we make it easier for that information to be accessible? And really, how can we make it easier for action to be accessible to people? That's something I've discovered that I'm really excited about bringing back into my theater practice. I mean, I'm just like mind blown at how, how full circle this has come. And I really do think that we are given the tools in our toolbox to use at a later time. So like, we are, we are placed in different places so that we can help a community around us at different points in our life. I, I really think that all that's true. So it's really cool to hear that kind of evolution. What are the things that you feel like have really transitioned well going from theater and stage managing and doing some producing of your own into being a politician? It's a small campaign and I've never worked on the campaign side of politics really before. I'm very blessed that my one of my best friends from high school has been in politics his whole adult life and was also running a campaign at the same time. So he's gotten many frantic text messages from me being like, how do I do this? Is this illegal? Like, what's going on? So that's a great resource. But so much of it was stuff that we have, like I had to learn on my own. Stage management skills have been so applicable, whether it's just keeping organized schedule of like 
here are 20 endorsement questionnaires that you have to answer because organizations will send you an endorsement questionnaire that has 10 questions that are all essay questions. They take a really long time to fill out a lot of them and you send them back and they'll consider you for an endorsement. How many of those do we have? When are the due dates? Have we submitted them? Have we heard back from them? Like that kind of baseline organization, very prepared for with all of my stage manager skills. I think stage managers inherently up some performance skills or knowledge, whether or not they are fully aware of it. But all of a sudden I found myself on the other side of the proverbial camera and we've been producing these events called Somebody Should Fix That, which is the name I stole lovingly from my friend Phil Gardner, who, who's been in politics. The idea being we like pick some important topics. We've done climate change, we've done education, we've done healthcare, and we invite a couple of guest experts and have a conversation about what is currently happening in these areas, where we still need to improve, that sort of thing having absorbed some performer skills. It's really like this amazing unification of theater skills. There's the organization that comes from like stage management and like producing these events, a directing eye of like, what's the story we want to tell with the way that I'm phrasing questions and how we're inviting people into this space. And then there's also the performer element. We're live streaming these interviews across the internet. That's been like a very tangible way where I'm like, I can see literally every element of theater affecting how we, how we pull this off. And then there's also just a, an element, I think performers in particular are so primed to be like premium campaign, either staff or volunteers, because really elections are all about voter contact. There are a variety of ways that we do voter contact. Normally it's knocking on doors, particularly for local campaigns. That's the crux of how they get the information out to voters is just walking around neighborhoods and saying, hey, I really like this candidate, Katie Young. Have you heard about her yet? We don't really have that option right now. So now it's like phone banking and text banking and writing postcards. I'm sure that a lot of you have like started hearing about these things in your, your circles or on your social media of ways to get involved. Performers who are comfortable talking to people are so perfect for this because you've got a script, but you also have to be totally comfortable just going off script and being like, I'm in a room or a room, fake room, (laughs) a phone room with you and tell me about why you're voting. Tell me about why you like this person, why you don't like this person. What do you want next senator or congressperson or state representative or whoever? having the skills to like have a conversation, which is, feels daunting to me sometimes, are super valuable in campaigns. I've worked on campaigns before myself, both local and national. I've served as an election official. I'm very involved in politics as well. And I love hearing this because I don't think I realized it at the time, but I've definitely drawn on my performance skills and my theater knowledge and skills to really go out there. And I have knocked on doors. I have, <laughs> I have phone banked. I mean, I've done it all. And so for me, who is an introvert, but still trained in performance, I have to turn myself on and off when I'm doing these things. Do you find that that is the case for you as well? 
Absolutely. Like there is definitely a character. It's really interesting because it makes you think about like authenticity and you can't help but think about like Hillary Clinton where we have to give space for people to have a certain amount of like a public persona and not let that amount of performance be considered inauthentic. Even how I am on this podcast, there's a performative element to being in public. When I'm sitting at home with my dog, I'm not bubbly and energetic generally, unless we're playing and there are Zoomies going on. So there's an element of performance that I think is inherent to the way that humans interact particularly with strangers, you know, like there's a natural thing that we do to protect ourselves and present ourselves in a specific way that we feel is the most appropriate for the situation, all that jazz. So there is an element of performance. It also feels a lot like customer service-y. I want these interactions to be positive. I was phone banking this weekend and had two phone calls with people who I was calling on behalf of our Washington State Democratic Party and just trying to figure out if people are planning on voting for our governor and like certain offices. Two people who were both like, no, I'm not voting for them. And then we had a very civil conversation about why they weren't voting for him. Having that customer service mind of I'm here to just like, I, I, wanna, I wanna help you vote. I wanna help you be educated about voting. I wanna help you have the information you need to be an activated citizen. and hopefully we agree that's my goal is hopefully we're you're voting for the person that i want you to vote for or voting for me but i also just want to get a sense for like what the people in my community are thinking and feeling too like that's also a valuable interaction for me personally as quiet katie who's sitting at home alone that's a scary prospect of talking to strangers but if if i'm allowed to like put on that little shield of performative katie it's a lot easier. So definitely, it definitely comes into play. And being in that environment has made me more aware of, of how we specifically judge women for, for having any sort of performative self in a public arena, I think. It's so interesting to me that you turn on and off that persona, because I have the opposite problem being an extrovert naturally. I'm always loud. I'm always going to tell you what's happening and what's going on in my brain. When I'm talking to people and they're telling me, oh, I'm not going to vote for this person because of this reason, that is totally irrational. <laughs> I, I can't not say, that doesn't make sense and you're not speaking English. And so I wish I had more of that. <laughs> so I really love that you have that. I wish I had more of that. I mean, this is a, a good thing to talk about when, when we're talking about like how to get involved. At least in Washington, I imagine that there are other states that have similar sort of guidelines. When you're volunteering for like the state party as a whole, you're not allowed to do like convincing because if the state party is paying for the, for the infrastructure to call voters or contact voters, the volunteers go on and say, we think you should vote for Katie Young because she believes that healthcare is a human right and that climate change is a serious issue that we should be dealing with. It's considered like a campaign contribution to my campaign, huh. the, the like in-kind services. Yeah. So if you're the sort of person where you're nervous about vouching for a specific candidate or 
like trying to convince voters to vote for someone, a great way to get involved is with your state party. A lot of the work that they do is just finding out like, finding out if people are planning on planning to vote, who they plan to vote for if they're willing to share that information. And then information can get shared with candidates. Oh, I know that Amy, Amy's 100% voting for me. Great. Beth still needs some convincing. So I'll make sure that one of our volunteers, Beth. So like there are ways that that sort of information gathering can be really helpful. And then we can send in volunteers who are like, I will convince you to vote for Katie. (laughs) And like, that's the people who are voting, like volunteering for a specific candidate who have a little bit more information about that specific candidate's policies and what they're fighting for. So there are opportunities, depending on how you like to interact with people, there are different possibilities for getting involved. A relatively new element of campaigning, particularly because of COVID, is text banking. Uh And for my own personal anxieties, I love text banking so much more. Calling is really valuable. Having that like actual human conversation is super valuable. But text banking is like a little more on demand. You like don't have to use your own phone number with these automated systems. You get to send out however many text messages for your block of people you're trying to contact. You like sit there and press your return button. And then a portion of those people will text you back. And for me, the reason I like it is it gives me a second to think about how I'm going to respond. The campaigns usually preload those services with FAQ responses. Maybe the campaign is asking, have you heard about Katie Young? Depending on if the person says, yes, I love Katie. Yes, I hate Katie. Uh, Uh I haven't heard about Katie Young. Who are you? The campaign can help you fill in those answers by saying like, oh, I'm so glad you heard about Katie. We're looking for volunteers. If you like her message, you could join a text bank or maybe you're interested in donating to the campaign or we're trying to get voters to share this message on Facebook or whatever the campaign's asking for. Or no, I don't know about Katie. Here's how you can learn some more about Katie. So like that to me is a really low anxiety way to help get the word out and help with that voter contact for campaigns. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. I can tell you, again, as an introvert, text banking actually is what gets me involved. Yeah. I am not apt to answer the phone (laughs) when someone calls, but I will answer a text if I'm interested. I think there's probably not enough research on the, on the impact that these sorts of things have. Um, I had a conversation with someone about like yard signs. Should, should we do yard signs? And they were like, there's not a lot of research on whether or not yard signs are particularly effective. I think it's more valuable for the people who are supporters. They enjoy having that way to show their support of a campaign and like demonstrate their pride for a candidate, which is great. Like that's super important too, making sure that your volunteers and your supporters feel like they're respected and valued is so important. But it is, there is some research that says that even the fact that they have that text message that says, I'm a volunteer with Biden-Harris, that's one more instance where they hear Biden-Harris. I'm a volunteer with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, one more time that that person hears that name. So even if they don't engage with you, having that text message on their phone is helping your candidate. And I guess it's better because it's, it's a direct message versus if you just have a yard sign, you know, I live in the back end of a neighborhood. Nobody comes by my house. 
Yeah. Nobody sees me. I can have 16 yard signs. Nobody will ever know. Like my three neighbors will know. So having, being able to do more direct messaging, I guess is really a lot better. And, and being able to understand, I think it's really interesting that you were talking about that marketing analysis Mm -hmm. of do yard signs actually help? which I'm guessing, and I don't know if you've connected this or not, I'm guessing comes from the producer in you who is used to thinking, okay, I have a budget of $100 that I can spend on marketing. What are we doing? Yeah. Particularly because the money that we have, I'm a theater artist. I can't self-fund a campaign. So like these are donations that came to me from people who support me because of my message or because they've worked with me and feel like I'd be good at this job or whatever reason, I feel such immense responsibility to spend that money wisely and make sure that what we're doing with it is effective and serving our cause in some way. And part of that is keeping our volunteers and our our supporters who are on the ground, like engaged and, and satisfied and a part of the campaign. I think campaign signs might be more useful for that than like legit advertising. But in our area, there's also a Republicans love campaign signs in our area. Then there becomes this psychological element of you drive through my neighborhood and all you see are Republican yard signs. And I'm like, as a Democrat, that's really, really intimidating. So in that sense, I'm like, get those yard signs out there. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. I have signs in the neighborhood. For lots of Republican candidates, I have flags in the neighborhood mm-hmm. for all these Republican candidates. And I'm like, um, I know that there are people who are voting in different ways in my neighborhood. I, it's yeah. not like there aren't any, but just no yard signs. And I live in a very conservative place, so I'm not sure if that plays that extra role in, you know, and I'm in the South. I don't know what it's like in the Northwest, but in the South, you know. My area is like particularly interesting because the Pacific Northwest is a fairly liberal area and like, and this specific district, that's, that's not to say that there aren't conservative areas and Washington in particular, like Eastern Washington is pretty conservative. Western Washington is quite liberal. And we happen to be in a district on the West side that looks a lot more like the East side in that way. But it's very cool to think about how different pieces of marketing do things maybe that you're not anticipating. Yeah. Maybe it's a little different. Totally. And just the psychology of where that, like, why is it that all of the Republicans in May are like yard signs, yard signs, yard signs, and the Democrats are like, let's spend our money on something else, you know? Like, that's a fascinating psychology thing. I Maybe someone listening has read something about that. I'm actually curious... Because, you know, we've talked about the skills that transfer from theater to politics. What about running a campaign and what you're learning in politics do you think that you'll carry with you back to the world of theater? I already know one of the things. (laughs) So amongst running for office in Washington, I also ran for a delegate seat in Actors' Equity, which is a new governance structure that Equity has approved where we have delegates from all regions of the country and all job types, chorus, principal, and stage manager, as well as representation from every liaison city. And the goal of this is to make the voices of members in non-office cities, so not New York, Chicago, LA, Orlando, a little louder in the union because 
if you're in New York City, you can walk down the street and go to the equity office and talk to staff members. That's not something that someone in Dallas has access to. So in the course of, of running for this delegate seat, one of my kind of policy platforms has been around harassment and ways in which the union can be more aggressive in the reporting and censure of harassment in the workplace. So I've been doing a lot of organizing around this topic and it's like literally the theater went into the campaign and now all the campaign skills are coming into organizing around anti-harassment policies and theater, which has been really exciting and wonderful. And I have a, an amazing group of co-conspirators who are working with me on it. And if anyone wants to get involved or stay up to date with what we're working on, they can reach out to anti-harassmentartists at gmail.com. But yeah, I'm already like reparlaying it back into the theater community and thinking more and more about ways that I can engage with theater that is more in service of the kind of social causes. What would you say to someone who is looking to run for office? If you had one piece of advice, what would be your piece? My one piece of advice would be start planning more than a day before the filing is due. <laughs> but there are some amazing resources for, for people who are considering running for office and especially people who are running for the first time and especially uh, women candidates or really just like not white male candidates. <laughs> Look out for those resources. There are things like the National Democratic Training Committee. I might have gotten that, that word wrong, but NDTC has so many training resources that begin with like, so you want to run for office, how to start organizing people who can help fund your campaign and how to start organizing in your tight knit communities to get the word out a year before you're planning on running. But then they also have great resources for like once you've actually decided to run. And Emily's list is another great one for female identifying candidates who are trying to understand if running for office is right for them, what options might be right for them as far as which office to pursue, things like that. And the other thing to keep in mind is that you don't have to run for state representative. You don't have to run for Congress. There are so many opportunities in our local governments that can utilize the skills that you have, whether you're a lawyer or a parent or, you know, an accountant, like there are all of these jobs in our government that use these skills for our elected positions. Really important to have like people who are passionate and committed because so much happens on our local levels. You know, a lot of our police budgets and oversight mm -hmm. are local, local, local decisions. Education, very local. So there's so much that we can affect on a scale that requires 2,000 votes instead of 200,000 votes. If someone doesn't know who you are and they want to find you, how do they find you? They can find me at electkatieyoung.com. Hopefully okay. we made that easy enough. Yeah. Uh, and we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash electkatieyoung. We live stream our, somebody should fix that episodes to the Facebook so that they're really accessible and something Maybe I shouldn't say this because I haven't actually done any of the work to produce it yet, but I've, I've been talking with them, is another amazing project that Waterwell has done is this like video exhibit called the Flores Exhibits. And they took testimony from children 
at border detention camps had immigrants and lawyers and artists and activists read these testimonies from these children and they recorded them. And so you can go to, I think it's flores-exhibits.org and watch these testimonies. They're, it's not like fun, but it's these firsthand accounts of what's happening at the border detention camps. And so I'm hoping with the campaign that we can organize an evening with a local immigration group and maybe a local immigration lawyer to watch a couple of these videos and talk about them and talk about immigration rights in Washington state. If that sounds at all interesting, check out Flores Exhibits, F-L-O-R-E-S, and hopefully we'll get added to their list of events that are happening around the country. And we'll go ahead, we'll link everything in the show notes. So we've awesome. talked about a bunch of different stuff today. This has been fantastic. Yes, thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today on Out of the Arts Podcast. If you have questions or want to see specific content, please leave a comment or email podcast at outofthearts.com. See you next time. And until then... We are rooting for you.